Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. First-generation college students often face many roadblocks on their higher education journey. Our guest this week understands firsthand what those challenges are and how to overcome them. In this week's episode, guest host Professor Andy Trees sits down with Dr. Andre Merrick, Roosevelt's new provost and executive vice president of academic affairs. Dr. Merrick is an established academic leader with over 17 years of higher education experience. As the first in his family to earn a college degree, Dr. Merrick understands firsthand the challenges that underrepresented students face. He prioritizes creating clear pathways for student success both within and across institutions and programs. Dr. Merrick is a borderland scholar who examines transnational flows of licit and illicit goods and migration, as well as indigenous history in the North American West. In this episode, Professor Trees and Dr. Merrick discuss his work as a borderland scholar and his hopes and plans for his tenure at Roosevelt University. Enjoy their conversation. Hello, and welcome to And Justice for All. I'm fortunate to be here today with the new provost and executive vice president of academic affairs here for all of two and a half weeks now, officially, I believe. Sounds right. Dr. Andre Marac. Welcome, Dr. Marac. It's great to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. So you have a great family story. You're first in your family to get a college degree. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I can. So I think the, the better part to start with this story is the fact that my mom was a high school dropout, but we didn't know that because uh, I think like a lot of first-generation students, our parents, like the assumption in our house was that everyone was going to go to college, and it was just an assumption. We all needed to go to college. And so I had assumed that both of my parents graduated from high school, and they never, um, it's not that my mom ever lied, she just never told us the truth, right, (laughs) about not finishing high school. And when it came out later, when I was in college, that she hadn't graduated from high school, she said, oh, yeah, I couldn't pass swimming, which uh, I'm not sure was the, <laughs> was the real reason, right? It really had to do, I think, at the time, the, the idea that she was a woman. My dad was a couple years older. They were engaged to be married. Why did she need to finish school, right? He was going to be the breadwinner. She would uh, raise a family and maybe work a little bit on the side as supplemental, but it wasn't necessarily important for her to get an education. So she went back and got her associates, ba- bachelor's, and master's in nursing Wow! after I finished my undergraduate, which is pretty amazing that if is you think pretty about amazing. it, right? Yeah. From high school dropout to getting a master's degree in a pretty tough field. I don't know if I could have done that. And my dad, he was a refugee from World War II, and so my last name is Ukrainian, actually, which is interesting in the news, but um, we don't know who his biological father was. So his mom ended up with my grandfather, who was a refugee from the Ukraine, who ended up in Austria. And then when the war ended, they ended up in a Polish DP camp because the part of the Ukraine that he was born in was part of Poland at the time, even though he wasn't ethnically Polish. And so they came through the Catholic Social Services to the U.S. He was a tailor and ended up in north-central Wisconsin. Uh, They resettled him there in a town where the majority of folks spoke German still in the late 40s and early 50s. So... That's that's amazing, isn't so, it? So I have to ask, with everything that's going on in Ukraine now, do you do you, are you aware of any family back there at this point, or so not me personally? I know that most of my Ukrainian relatives 
are here. So my grandfather was really good at sponsoring people to come over. Mm. So the folks that I know are, are all here, but I bet you they have connections back there. Mm. So That's pretty incredible after going through all that, uh, that here you are now as a provost. So I'm curious, you said they just assumed you would go to college. Like, what was your family life like that sort of set you on this path? Yeah. So when I told my parents I got a job as provost, they said, what's that? So that, that should help you, right? I, I think uh, the rule around our house is that you need to go to college, and you had to go to college for something useful. And that's how I became a political scientist and historian. Um, actually, there was a, quite a bit of contention around that, right? So I went to school to be, be a journalist uh, at Marquette University. And when I was in journalism school, some like my sophomore year, there was some gateway course where you figure out they figure out whether or not they'll let you into the, the track. For me, it was going to be uh, print. And they figure out whether or not they're going to let you in the track. And I did that. And I got my portfolio. I still have it. And the, the faculty member there said, you're the most cynical sophomore <laughs> I've ever run into. You could do well in this field, but you probably should get out. And I was looking at my stuff. I was like, yeah, I can't stand this. I really don't like um, the classes. I just don't like them. Huh. We were doing like... Over and over, like uh, I, they had us, uh, um, if you were to write a news story, there's a, a cat caught in a tree and a fireman has to come. What would be the lead? And I was like, oh, come on, I want to write for the New York Times or something. What are, we, what are we doing, right? It seemed like I couldn't connect the dots from here to there. And, and, and I was more interested in like, I guess, like real news <laughs> instead of the, this was a time when USA Today was coming out mm-hmm. and, and we were having discussions about, you need to write uh, average readers if uh, reads at the fifth grade level, mm-hmm. and there's going to be more pictures and graphs, and the words will be bigger. and the, And I was like, oh, and I want to write New York Times where the words are small <laughs> and everyone's Mister or you know, and and it didn't match up. And I was looking like, oh, well, that's weird. Like every time I have a slot, I take political science courses. Mm-hmm. That's probably what I need to major in. So I didn't live with my parents, but I went and I told them that I was going to change my major to political science. And my dad told me that it was the, like, what am I going to do? Become a politician? Is that the only thing you can do with that? And I said, no, I don't really know what I'm going to do, but that's what I want to study. And he's like, well, that's the dumbest thing ever. And so I, I finished it. And so I like to tell him now, like uh, when I when I uh, became chair and then when I became dean, I always go back like, yeah, that was a pretty dumb move. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it goes to show, right? I mean, the, the bigger picture piece is that I got a four-year degree and I started managing restaurants, right? And the assumption is, I think by lots of people, some members of my family included, was that that was a waste. I could have just gone and managed restaurants without it. Mm-hmm. But I would argue, and I'm right, <laughs> that it was super useful. I learned Spanish, which made a huge difference, right? Go to any restaurant. Uh, the fact that you can speak Spanish means you can talk to the entire staff that's there. Our discussions were culturally relevant. I knew about the situation that uh, the majority of the folks that I worked with in restaurants, though not all, were from Mexico the area I studied, no less, right? And I knew about the the political and social situation in their country, uh, which mattered, right, a lot, Uh, being able to help people and figure out issues around immigration and other things. It made me a much better leader in those spaces Mm -hmm. than I would have been without the degree. And I jumped from being an entry-level assistant manager to becoming a GM of a major restaurant, looking at multiple different restaurants and overseeing multiple different restaurants uh, in a short period of time, which I couldn't have done had I come right out of high school mm-hmm. and, and gone and started working. Besides, I wasn't mature enough when I was 18 or 19 to, to lead anyways. Yeah, I think so. that's, a, that's a great story for people who wonder about liberal arts education, right? Where it's yeah. just great uh, kind of training in a broad way where you can find yourself doing a lot of different things and you don't have to necessarily specialize and you can sort of find your way as you did in college. It's interesting that you yeah. kind of switch from one to the other, which actually leads me to a quote I read that I really liked uh, that you offered in one of the articles. Uh, Our personal professional journeys seldom follow a straight path, let alone the path that we think that it will. I love that. I, I'm just curious. You've already offered a couple of examples. Like, how does that sort of uh, tell the story of your life? What what sort of swerves have you taken uh, over time? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's there's too many to to cover, right? In a in a in a short period of time. We have three hours. It's yeah, fine. we got three hours. Except that I have a, another meeting coming up, right? So, uh, so maybe maybe we have three hours. We'll have to we'll have to resume and do version two. Um, I can think of a lot of them, right? But uh, so. 
I was pretty sure when I was in high school that I would be a journalist. And I think the reason that I was interested in journalism was the really strength-based approach that my journalism teachers in high school gave. Right? I'm not sure that I was that great of a writer or anything else, but I got tons of encouragement, people telling me I could do stuff. <laughs> Somebody bought me Strunk and White, remember that? <laughs> sure. Uh, 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 how to write well or something on writing well. And uh, somebody else bought me War and Peace, War and Peace. right? I mean, uh, because I was a, a avid reader and a writer. And, you know, these things turned in a different direction. When I went to grad school, so I didn't plan to go to grad school because I didn't know that I should go to grad school. And it was a faculty member who lived across the street from me on the east side of Milwaukee, and I ran into him. He was playing soccer. And he was like, oh, you're still around. I thought, since you didn't go to Marquette for grad school, that you would be gone someplace else. (laughs) And I said to him, like, someplace else? Like, doing what? And so he called me back to campus and told me, like, you need to write letters, and here's the places you should apply, and this, you know, whatever. And he was a Latin Americanist, which is interesting, because I had him for a single class, and uh, he was well-renowned for not Nobody earned an A in his class. I almost said he didn't give out A's. I mean, he certainly didn't give out A's, but nobody got an A in his class. And uh, there were plenty, like people would say, don't take him, you won't get an A. But he turned me on to reading a lot of Latin American literature, which I'd never been exposed to. But I was really, really interested, actually, in political philosophy. That's what I thought I was going to go to grad school for. That or, or studying the Maastricht Treaty which uh, created a united Western Europe, which is now unraveling, right, Right. in in its own ways. So I thought I was going to do that, but then I went to grad school, and it quickly became clear to me that I wanted to study Mexico, and uh, all probably based on reading Alan Riding's book. And then when I was at Syracuse for my master's, they only had a single political scientist in the program, which is super huge, that focused on Latin America. And he told me, don't study Mexico, do a a small country. That way there won't be as much competition in terms of who Mm. else is publishing. It'll be easier. And and, uh, I was like, oh, I guess since I want to study Mexico, I probably shouldn't stay here. And so a number of faculty told me like, hey, you know, here's some other places you could go. If you want to do it, you should probably go to the borderlands, U.S., uh, of the U.S. and go to Arizona, Texas, or, or New Mexico. And so I, I went there. And, and when I got there, I, I thought I was going to do uh, politics about the current politics around the PRI, uh, the leading party in Mexico. But it quickly became clear to me there that unless you wanted to do multi-regression analyses and <laughs> that sort of stuff, which didn't make sense to me when you're studying a, an authoritarian government, like if you're doing studying parties, when the authoritarian government determines who wins at the election box, what good is quantitative analysis of those wins? I say this even though I have some colleagues who've been successful in like finding ways to, to do that in SMART. So I was like, well, if I can't do that, maybe I'll, I'll study the, the founding of the political party. And so I went to Mexico to go do research. And then as I was doing research there, I decided that, well, first of all, I, I got there and I got introduced to a guy who was working on exactly that project. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, okay. So I probably, not that, I, he told me, like, go ahead. We won't end up with the same book, mm-hmm. right? Which is, which is true. But I was like, well, okay, maybe I won't do that because I'm going to have to retrace his steps and, you know, I'll just do something else. And I was like, oh, well. I've been digging through these archives, and I just read this other book about education in Mexico. I'll just write about that. And then I I was thinking, like, oh, but I know nothing about the history of education in Mexico. I better limit it. And when I started looking at different spaces, since I was interested in the founding of the PRI, almost all the leaders of the early PRI were from Sonora. Mm -hmm. I started going, like, well, I'll look at education in Sonora. And then I... uh, I then said, oh, well, it's next door to Chihuahua. I should do comparative stuff because of my political science background. So I picked three states, and and then I did it. So none of that was planned, Uh right? Just like my plan, I expected when I got a job in academia that I would just teach forever. And then in my first year, I uh, ended up, well, I was at California University of Pennsylvania. I had to share offices with a, a woman named Beth Fitch, who's much, I think she already had tenure at that point, but we had to share an office. And so we were there and we were talking. She's like, oh, let's put on a conference together. And uh, we put on a conference together. And the next year we were planning for our second conference and we wrote a grant together. And then she died in giving uh, birth to a child. 
unexpectedly. Mm. She was like 40. Nobody, like, no, out of the blue. And uh, I was asked to take over the women's studies program, like, on the spot. And then I agreed, and the president and I agreed that uh, given that it was a women's studies program, I wasn't a good permanent fit, mm -hmm. and so did the members of that committee. I took it over and ran a search for my replacement, and then the members of my department said, okay, it's time for you to be chair. And then the president said, oh, you did a good job stepping in that other thing. Will you go up and take over honors, too? And so I didn't plan to go into administrative stuff. It happened, and then it kept happening. And then I decided, oh, I, I want to get closer to my family. About the only way you can move in academia mm -hmm. now is administratively to move. So I decided I was my, my family's in Wisconsin. I'm going to try to get from Pennsylvania as close to Wisconsin as I can get. And that's how I ended up at Governor State. So uh, I made a move from Pennsylvania to Indiana to Illinois. And now I'm here, right? So uh, all unexpected, yeah. right? And, and I should say that it took me four years from getting my PhD to land a tenure track job. Mm -hmm. And I ran restaurants during that time period. Again, I came back, ran restaurants. Uh, there was a point at which I was thinking about either I'm going to do that for a living uh, like, I'm going to get off the job market for being an academic because I went four straight years. I got a couple offers because I had a full-time job. I could be picky, mm -hmm. and I turned down some job offers in places I didn't want to go, uh -huh. which then made me think, why am I applying? <laughs> right? Right, right. Uh, to those places? I've, and been, I, I, I've yeah. been in that situation. Okay, yeah. so then I, I decided I'm just going to pair back. I'm going to only yeah. apply to a couple places that are enticing to me. And then in 2004, I got four offers in the same week all at places I want to go to. And the year before I gotten zero offers. And then the, the couple years prior to that, I got a couple that I didn't want. So, you know, you don't really have control as an academic about whether or not you can land a job. Mm -hmm. And it's worse now than it was before. So it's all chance. But I viewed myself always as being somewhat opportunistic, but driving the same sort of values at every place that I go. So another long answer to no, a short very question. Very interesting. Right? I mean, I find it very interesting personally because I, you know that whole thing about you know some people go into it. I think everyone goes into thinking, you know, oh, I hope I'm a professor and I'll and I'll do that. And then some people continue to do that and it's great and they they teach their whole careers and they're professors. And then some people make the shift into administration and start doing that. I'm just curious, what are the trade-offs? What you know, you've yeah. done both. Uh, what what what's your kind? Do you miss teaching or uh, how how do you feel about it? <laughs> so. So I hate grading. How about that? <laughs> so it's always the one part of the job that I've always, always hated. Mm -hmm. I don't like grading. I don't like negotiating with students over grades, which is a regular part of, of doing business. And uh, so I love teaching, and I love feedback, but I don't like grading. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing that I never really liked about being in the classroom I actually like being an administrator more. So so I guess one of the other pieces is that I never realized how much I would love writing. Mm. And I still write. I still publish something like uh, every year or every other year, more often if I can. And the fact that I've never been willing to just write about one thing, which is bad for being <laughs> like a faculty <laughs> member. You have longer range projects. They take years. I haven't really written much about education since my dissertation. Mm -hmm. I, I do have like an article on that that I co-wrote with somebody else in, in that time period. But mostly I did like tons of work and then I left it and, mm -hmm. and did something else. And I've always had that sort of deal where I'm always intellectually curious about something else. Right now I was asked to write a, a chapter for a book on presidencies because as I told Ali and others, I'd like to become a, a university president at some point, though I'm not in a hurry. And uh, I got pitched at like, hey, you're mid-career. Tell us about your pathway, right? So I get to retell that story, but in, in print. Always have new interesting things that I'm interested in. And you can do that as an administrator. You mm -hmm. can't really do that as a faculty member unless you want to be pulling your hair out, right? Because, <laughs> because the, the prep that it takes to deliver a new course well is a lot. Right, and you can't just every year reinvent yourself mm -hmm. in something new. But as an administrator, I come in and I work every day, and then I get to play on the side mm -hmm. by like picking a topic and writing about it. Though I miss going to archives, uh, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I guess it's worth mentioning one other thing. I think that there's two different types of folks in academia. There's folks with their heads up and folks with their head down. 
and I'm stealing this from somebody else uh, who uses this. And the folks with their head up are about 15%. This is what their claim is. And folks with their head down are about 85%. Folks with their head down are the ones who are lifelong teachers and scholars. Mm-hmm. They, they are focused. Their focus is often narrow. That doesn't need to be. But they're in the classroom. They're doing service. They're doing research. And they're doing that. Folks with their heads up are thinking about, like, from the very beginning, sharing an office with Beth Fitch, and then thinking about, Mm -hmm. oh, let's do a conference, Mm -hmm. right? And so I became known as somebody who, like, ran conferences or brought major speakers to campus, got involved on major um, strategic things that were going on around campus. That has its trade-offs. It means that you're spending less time in your department advancing those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so that it's, you know, at some point, you, you kind of got to make a choice. If you have your head up and you're interested in really big things that stretch across the institution, those are the folks who end up in administrative things usually. And those who are much more focused, like on the next book or their students' career trajectories and those mm-hmm. uh, tended, and you need both, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've always been the sort of, like, I guess I read like four books at a time. <laughs> I do, right? And uh, and I can manage it. I've always managed it to read them and uh, at like I have different parts of things that I want to dig through. And so I'm always curious about a wide range of things. And if I had to stay on that focus like I did for my dissertation, uh, that's tough. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I like co-authoring. <laughs> uh, for real, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I can work with people and then they can help fill in the spots I, I did a thing with uh, uh, Laura Tunerman, who's still in uh, Pennsylvania. We decided we broke up who was doing research at which archives. Oh, and then we great. came back and then uh, co-wrote chapters. Uh-huh. And we'd be like, well, you know more about that. You write the rough draft. And I know more about this. I write the rough draft. And then we, we work through them. So that works for how my brain works, um, whereas that that single author sort of thing that historians are supposed to do. My, my first book, the one I wrote by myself, is the worst. It is. And if I could redo it now, I would. <laughs> so, Well, I have to say, so when I read your resume, I was really struck by a couple of things related to your that I want to talk about. You have, I think, one of my favorite titles I've seen in a long time, Smugglers, Brothels, and Twine, Yeah, Historical Perspectives on Contraband Advice in North America's Borderlands, which a lot of academic titles I read, and I'm like, I really have no, I might have to read it, but I have no interest in reading that book. Yeah. I really want to read that book. So can you tell me a little about that? Yeah. So that's an edited volume that Elaine Carey and I did. So Elaine and I went to grad school at University of New Mexico together, and uh, we're both working on borderlands. And one of the things that I was interested, two things that I was interested in were the ways in which government folks on the U.S. and Mexican side of the border were using gender to try to civilize and acculturate Mm. people, right? And the focus on acculturating women. So... If women can be taught to be anti-vice police, uh, because that's their natural condition, right, supposedly, and this is during the time of the rise of prohibition, right? If we can tap into women's civilizing ability and acculturate them, since they raise children within a generation or two, Hmm. everyone will be civilized. And the focus in the U.S. was on indigenous people, and the focus in Mexico was equal parts indigenous and rural people because they were viewed, at least in Mexico's regime, as being often not any different, Hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Even though indigenous people didn't view themselves as just being rural people, right? But the government viewed them in the same classification. So I was interested in those anti-vice and anti-alcohol campaigns in those spaces, and she was working on drugs in those same spaces. And so we started talking, we're like, what we're really talking about is vice, Mm. right? And uh, anti-vice campaigns and how they work. And both the U.S. and Mexico use liberal regimes, and by this I mean big picture liberal, right? Not left-wing, but uh, economic liberal regimes to despoil indigenous peoples of their lands in order to create a modern state. And so we started looking at those, and the goal of that one is to take a look at, you know, we are just talking about this for my profile. I like to think of my work as looking at transnational flows of illicit and illicit goods and peoples. And uh, we were talking about, is it acceptable for me to talk about licit and illicit peoples? <laughs> and the, the answer is that that's not my category. This is the way in which people categorize people. So who deserves to cross the border? And how does that change over time? And what does it have to do with race, class, gender, national origin, 
those sorts of things. And uh, so, you know, in our current xenophobic age, where we use policies about COVID in order to make sure that people who deserve the right to at least apply for asylum, that they have to apply for asylum outside the United States, which then makes it nearly impossible for them to get asylum. That's worth thinking about. Why don't those people have value? What makes them illicit and not belong and lacking in humanity in some way? So that's that's what we're looking at. We're looking at, uh, so of course the title's catchy because we have people who write about brothels we have people who write about drugs and vice, but the twine piece. Yeah, um, yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the twine piece, which we included, is a, a, a look at the ways in which U.S. made prison made twine was ruled illegal in Canada. And uh, this is when uh, um, we first started uh, shifting from, you know, the major harvesters that would use twine to create bales. Uh-huh. And so the U.S. is uh, using prison laborers to create twine, and Canada says you can't do that. But then some Canadian farmers get busted for smuggling twine across the border because it costs less. But and it's so, violating Canada, Canadian labor yeah, laws. Yeah, yeah, it's, no. it's violating, uh, violating Canadian laws. And in some ways, it's no different than cigarette smugglers, right. drug smugglers, alcohol smugglers, and others who are engaging in this stuff. So what really makes it illicit, right? And who gets to decide about those things? So it seems like, uh, how the heck does that fit in? But it fits in perfectly, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And, and what's viewed as illicit and what's viewed as licit change over time. And, and having a story about twine being unacceptable in Canada um, really shines a light on how shifting those categories yeah. can be over time. You, you can hardly think of a more prosaic, kind of unthreatening uh, item than yeah. twine. The That's fact right. that that becomes an illicit good. I, I love the way you're framing it. It's so interesting because you think about our immigration problem, and I feel like, you know, it's there is obviously a policy problem, but I mean, the reason it's so difficult to solve is that it's been freighted with all these kind of racialized and, you know, masculinized and criminalized ideas of who can be a proper citizen, who can be yeah. American, that it's really tough to untangle that and just actually look at it and say, well, you know, what, what would be good policy that would make sense for both countries and allow all this to occur? Yeah, well, the, the real answer right now would be like, uh, we're, we're worried about whether or not there's going to be enough of a population to be here, yeah. um, to, to go to college, go to school, fill jobs and those things. I mean, the real answer is that we should be opening the door much more, right? Yeah. Instead, we'll probably end up with some some sort of incentives to have more kids or, or things that's happened in other, I want to use air quotes, like white European nations that are trying not to become less white, right, by promoting that sort of stuff. But I would argue that conservatives often would say that it's not about race, right? That it's about 9-11, it's about other stuff. But of course, uh, it's not in this work, but some of my other work that I do on uh, borderlands and, and gates and walls and that sort of stuff, the, the more or less open border with Canada and the closed border with Mexico cries foul for that claim, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just not true. Mm-hmm. And And historians, I'm thinking here now, Kelly Lytle Hernandez makes an argument that it's not until like the 1930s that we get a real assumption of of what she calls Mexican brown, right? So prior to the 1930s, Mexicans were by, by law considered white, even though they weren't necessarily automatically treated that way. But it becomes in 1930s where there's an automatic assumption that ties Mexicans to race. Hmm. Because uh, I like to remind folks, uh, often my students, that there's a wide range of different races of people in Mexico, right? And not everybody is stereotypically Mexican brown. But that has to do a lot with sending areas, who who migrates and when they migrate and those sorts of things, right? So lots of early Mexicans who crossed back and forth across the border were wealthier Mm -hmm. and whiter, right? So as working class people come over the border during the revolution and then later for labor reasons, it tends to be working class folks. And they they tend to be, um, because Latin America is a pigmentocracy, they tend to be the poorer you are, the more likely you are to be brown, right? right? And, uh, And we get stereotypical images about who's coming and what they're doing. Even as we value their labor, right? We want them to, to go back. And there's, uh, there's pretty good early testimony in, in Congress that talks about how Mexicans were genetically perfectly situated for stoop labor because they were naturally shorter, they could work hard, they could do longer hours, they could work in the sun, and they were naturally migratory, genetically migratory, and would automatically return home, which is... <laughs> 
not <laughs> it's not human, right? But it, but it was Sounds an like assumption. Some weird dystopian it, sci-fi yeah, premise. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, but but the people making the it's hard to know if the people making these claims actually believe this stuff mm. or not. It was pretty self-serving, regardless, right? You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. That's interesting to talk about yeah. that with the open border. Canada, I read an interesting article that was talking about the fact that for a long time, and with the Mexican border, they didn't really enforce a border policy and people migrated across to work on the farms or whatever in California. And then they went back when the season was over. Yeah. And uh, a general came in, I think from the Marine Corps, and as a Marine thought this was no way to run a border. And that's when they really tried to ramp up security and keep control over whatever. And in some ways, you know, you could argue that the very attempt to try, every every greater and greater attempt to secure the border creates larger and larger problems yeah. with the very thing you're trying to solve. It's like this irony of, uh, you know, keep, yeah. keep trying more of the same regardless of whether or not it works. Yeah, walls don't work, right? So uh, the, the Border Patrol is established in 1924. So that's the first time that there's any real policing of the border. But I think the the funny and ironic part about border walls is that we know that the, the harder it is to cross, the more expensive it is for people to cross. And the more expensive it is, the longer they have to work in the U.S. in order to pay back the cost it costs to come over. And the longer they're in the U.S. working with the least ability to go back and forth to meet mm-hmm. family means they're more likely to set permanent roots in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and have kids. None of that stuff bothers me personally. But if you really cared about preventing people from coming and staying, mm-hmm. you would do the exact opposite. Right. You would, in fact, open up the borders but require people to come and check in. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, and then you could actually keep track of who was where which is a, a bonus we have as U.S. citizens of the ability to travel just about anywhere in the world with a passport and a visa. And we pass through regular ports of entry, and then people know when we're there, and there's limits about how long we can stay and on what terms we can work, right? That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But illegalizing the mere presence of people forces people into the shadows and then makes it, well, it opens them up to harm, but makes it more likely that they'll come and stay for a long period of time, undermining the very policy that exists. But then... One could argue that that works all well to the military-industrial complex that's building ever more expensive technical solutions right. at the border that doesn't work, right? So, but can be repurposed in all sorts of ways. <laughs> well, well, or or the or the reverse, right? And some of the work that we do, we talk about the fact that we take what we're using in the war. And then we bring it back home, right? right? The way that we've militarized police, police forces yep. and, uh, mm-hmm. and we take things from combat and then we bring them back along the border. And the real problem with that, I think, is the potential future of artificial intelligence making responses on behalf of us instead of humans making right. judgment calls, right? Uh, so that, that's concerning to me. But now I think I've gotten off track somehow. No, it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I'll go to a lighter note now because I was yeah. so curious. I saw you wrote for uh, an encyclopedia an entry on baseball. Uh-huh. And you've also taught a course <laughs> on the history of sports. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Curious uh, about really your own sports affiliations here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, my own sports. Affi- I thought, and we're also gonna... your interest in sports, <laughs> and we can talk about deeper yeah, issues as yeah, well. Yeah. Mainly, I, which th- team do you root for? That's what. I'm <laughs> so. Even though I remind students in my classes that your connection to sports teams is uh, totally illogical and makes right. zero sense, right? <laughs> because those players, they they don't, unlike the early teams, they're not members of your community. They don't live there. Few of them own homes or pay taxes where you're at, right? right? Uh, the owners are, are often multi-million and billionaires who extract resources out of your community. Nonetheless, I'm, I'm a Brewers fan, <laughs> a Packers fan, and a Bucks fan. So uh, I get the baseball package every every summer, even though every year I say, this will be the last year. And then I... And then I uh, try to watch as many games as I can. The bonus, I watch very little TV, but the bonus of baseball is a slow enough game, and it's gotten way slower, right? Is that it's the only sport that you can read books during that you don't miss anything. (laughs) And I have that down to a T. Well, speaking of uh, not liking grading, so that is, you know, you can watch baseball and do grading at the same time, which I I think lessens the pain. Yeah, uh, yeah. probably. (laughs) (laughs) Or some people would say makes it worse, right? No, I know what you mean about sports. I mean, it is one of the, I I think one of the reasons I like watching sports is that you can root irrationally for a team for very low stakes, right? It doesn't have to have the same uh, 
kind of problems that uh, rooting for your political team has. But it is kind of funny when you think about it. I'm a Cubs fan and watching them totally dismantle you know, send again. everyone to the, yeah. to the wins. I saw Chris Bryant just signed his contract somewhere, and Rizzo's gone, and Baez is gone, Lester's gone. Like, everyone's gone. And but it's you like, won a World Series. But, well, I, I, which I'm very excited about. You yeah. know, it took us 100 years. But, uh, you know, so now I'll still root for the Cubs, but, like, who am I rooting for, really? I mean, it's just another But it won't collection. matter, will it? It really won't matter. Yeah, I you'll, mean, you'll if watch, they have a good run, I'll be totally invested yeah. again. It really doesn't matter at all. And you'll watch the hometown uh, media, which will give everything a beautiful Cubs slant, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is an unfair question to ask so recently into your tenure, but I'm just curious, uh, any early thoughts on what you're hoping to accomplish while you're oh. here at Roosevelt? Sure. I just I just wrote a, a speech that I gave maybe yesterday at the State of the University address, right? So I think early on there's there's three main areas that I'm interested in. And I don't want any of the things I'm talking about to make an assumption that other people haven't been working on these before I arrived, which would make it daunting and impossible. But I think that we can accomplish all three. One is a, a real focus on student success. I like to tell people, and I think it's true, that 90% of things that are good for students are good for faculty. And so we should, whatever it takes for student success, we should do that. And whatever's best for students, often best for faculty, I think about class sizes and uh, program size and all those things. If we do what's right for students, faculty will be in a good place. And so that's a win-win for everybody. And uh, and I also think that a part of that that student success piece is making sure that that we meet students where they're at. I know people like to say, like, that we teach the students we have rather than the students that we'd rather have. But I would argue that there's no students that would be better than having than the students that you have. First generation, Pell eligible, low socioeconomic status, all those things. You can't make a bigger change in people's lives through education than working with those very students. And given the sort of work that we work on, and listening to you talking about getting to teach an honors course with an experiential piece, is students with real lived experience bring their own knowledge to the table and actually add to the equation if you teach right, right? I mean, there's so much to learn from students. I taught a first-year seminar at uh, Governor State University in the last couple years on the history and literature of Chicago. I did it for two reasons. One, because I wanted to pick a topic that our students would know. And number two, because I want to learn more about Chicago. (laughs) And having students who are from Chicago, and we spent a lot of time talking about neighborhoods, ethnic neighborhoods, how neighborhoods change, all that stuff. But having students in a classroom, like, I don't know Chicago that well. I know some parts of Chicago. I've now lived here a decade. I'm not ignorant of it. I've read uh, quite a bit. But having students who've lived in different neighborhoods and know about those neighborhoods and can tell you where one neighborhood ends and another one begins, or having students dispute with each other about that that's not where the neighborhood is, right? That sort of stuff. That's real knowledge they bring to the table. And it also gets buy-in, right? That sort of stuff. So I'm interested in student success. That's key. I've also, it's clear, I've been brought here to help with enrollment growth. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think we're positioned in a place where it's really quite possible. In spite of the macro environment that we're in, where there's declining uh, demographics of students graduating from high school and all those things, we have a huge opportunity. Only 15% of community college students, so something like 80% of community college students want to get a four-year degree. Only 15% ever do. Hmm. So think about that other 65%. Is that right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm doing math in my head okay. <laughs> the other 65% of students are, are the ones that we need to go get, right? And we need to build better relationships with area high schools and community colleges and to create the sort of supports and pathways that students need for success. So we can do that. There's uh, opportunities in uh, the health fields, obviously, and there's Lots of opportunity in other STEM areas like cybersecurity, IT, computer science, mm-hmm. business analytics, big data, uh, all that sort of stuff. We need to do all that stuff without losing the fact that at its heart, education is a, is a humanistic field, right? Like we were talking about earlier. Um, you can get a history degree and uh, run businesses. We need to convince people of that. But we shouldn't tell people that they're making the wrong choice by choosing an applied program, right? We just need to make sure that at the heart and soul of all education is the, is you know, in gen ed, but more broadly is the focus on social justice that we have. So that's two of the areas that we have. 
So what did I say? Student success, enrollment growth. And then the last thing, which I've kind of mentioned already in the enrollment growth, is I'm really, really interested in, in building relationships. So it's easy to run outreach by buying lists and doing enrollment management that way. And it's super necessary, right? I mean, the recruiting through digital platforms and Facebook and LinkedIn and all those things, uh, it's where people are at. But the best way to get people to convince them to come to Roosevelt and make a difference in their lives is by getting to know them, right? And uh, most first-generation students make a choice about where they're going to go to school based on the the suggestions of their family and friends. So not based on what they see in, in Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. I don't, I have to find out which, which the ones <laughs> my, the my daughters are on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the truth of the matter is that it's a, it's a, a it's about getting to know people. And I like doing that stuff for starters. And uh, there's plenty of people here who know people who work at those institutions. We need to be better about being intentional about being in touch with them, co-planning opportunities for students, bringing in speakers or, or doing uh, service learning that crosses institutions. That's the sort of work that we need to do. So those are the three big ones. And then, of course, the beauty of these things is that I'm sure within a year, there'll be newer, different ones, right? Just like uh, the path of my career. There's no way to know what's going to come up or what opportunities, but we'll jump at those two. I'm curious, so I just had a follow-up question about that. You talk about student success, which I think we all care deeply about. That's obviously, there are a lot of components of that. Are there particular areas where you feel like, you know, here's something where I really feel like we can dig in and help students? Yeah, so so I'm not sure yet, right? That's, fair. I, I, That's yeah, a fair answer. Because I, I don't know, but I'll tell you from my, my own experience, right? Like, not, not my own experience as a student per se, but my own experience working at other institutions. I think it's really, really important to build a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And it's clear that, that you do that by, there's statistics out there that once a student knows seven people on campus and knows that there's at least seven people who deeply care about them as a person and not just them as a student, right? So if you're in my class and all I talk to you about are your grades, you missed an assignment, when are you gonna turn in this uh, assignment or it's time to turn in your assignment, that's very transactional. Mm But when I find out, like, how are you? How's your family? How's it going? And by the time a student knows seven people, it could be a janitor, it could be an administrative support person, it could be me, it can be a faculty member, it could be anybody. Once they know seven people and know that those seven people care about them, they're much more likely to be successful. Hmm. So building real relationships, it's, you know, in the literature, it's called authentic care, caring about the entire student rather than just that student's being a student. And that means that you do what's best for the student rather than what's best for the institution. And in the end, that's what's best for the institution, Mm -hmm. is what I would argue. So I've helped students leave the university I was at when there's a better fit for them someplace else. I've accepted that sometimes it's best for students to step out of school to come back later. But then you got to remind, you got to be there to be reaching back mm-hmm. out and telling them like, hey, there's a reason you stepped out. Now it's time to come back, right? Uh, those sorts of things. So I'm a big believer in that. I'm a big believer in not lowering standards to help students pass. And I think that's super important. So having high rigor is super important. Students read when you're like lowering the standards to help them through. They view that in a perfectly acceptable way, such as that they say like, that person doesn't care about me. Hmm. Right. So we need to have high rigor, but then we need to also have high support in place, which means interventions when students need it. But more importantly, is not assuming that students should already know things that we're here to teach them. So you'll see this all the time. Right. Maybe you felt this way in grad school. You arrive in grad school and then uh, people start talking. You're like, oh, my God, what are they talking about? Who's that author? What's this thing? Right. But you're too afraid to raise your hand. Be like, who is that? Right. I never heard of that person before. And then you're like, oh, my God, I don't belong here. And then you get out and you get to know the people in your class and to find out like none of us know. But none of us asked. Right. Right. And then if you find out later, like that professor assumes that you should know this stuff because you learned it some other time. But in fact, they're there to teach it. And so we need to know that, like, I should, like, <laughs> I got into grad school and uh, everybody assumed that I'd already written a bibliographical essay. I was like, what's that? I don't know what it is. Well, I'd mostly done political science. I don't think we do bibliographical essays in political science or maybe historiographical essays, whatever we want to call them. 
And then I switched to history. So I never got that background mm-hmm. and nobody told me what it was. And I had to scramble and go find the right people to tell me without embarrassing myself. A better thing would have been to ask like, who's written one of these before? Mm-hmm. And then actually teach how it's done instead of assuming right. that you know it, right? right? So when you get people in a particular space, we got to stop assuming that everybody in the classroom has these funds of knowledge that they already know how to do these things. In fact, we all arrive in different spaces and different uh, abilities and different experiences. So I got to go in there and find out who can do this and who doesn't know how to do it. We got to teach them and the people who already know how to do it can help me teach, right? So those are those are some key pieces for me, right? Mm-hmm. Caring about the whole student, meeting students where they're at, having high rigor and then not assuming what they already know and being willing to teach people and to differentiate our teaching in order to make sure everyone's successful. Let me turn that question around a little bit. You first in your family had to get a college degree and there are a lot of students like that at Roosevelt and I think when you don't grow up uh, kind of around people who've done that, it, it can be a jarring transition and it can be a struggle at first. So I'm curious, you obviously navigated it very well. <laughs> what, Not really. <laughs> but we're going to assume you did. What sort of advice you have for students like that at Roosevelt? Yeah. So so I didn't do really well. I think that's one of the things I shared in the interview process mm-hmm. is it took me, I dropped out of school twice. Uh, once because it made a bunch of bad decisions and another time just because things got tough. So for me, the thing that really helped, so I had a hard time. I was poor. I was had a job where I was working minimum wage. I could barely pay my bills and I would miss class. And then when I missed enough class, then I would be embarrassed about talking to a mm-hmm. teacher about what I missed. And so that would often lead to me missing more class. And at Marquette University, I can't remember what it was, but if the teacher took attendance, and most of them did, if you missed a certain number of classes, you'd get a withdrawal F, right? Mm-hmm. And that was to entice you to, to go to class. For me, it just meant that I would drop the class, right? If I missed too many of them. And there's pretty good evidence that that's not the right approach, mm-hmm. right? That that sort of stuff works. For people who've not faced lots of trauma, who don't have lots of barriers, incentivizing by by requiring attendance and then punishing people who don't attend. But for me, it just made it much more difficult to navigate my own issues about being able to pay rent and eat and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so I guess I guess the answer for me is that we need to be flexible for people. COVID's probably really taught us that. But the thing that really got it going for me, I joined the Army Reserve and then later the Army National Guard to help me pay my bills. It was a a veterans resource officer who told me like, hey, you know, you keep missing class and you keep doing poorly as a result of missing class. So here's my deal. I need you to come every week and report to me about any classes you missed. You're not allowed to miss any more classes. And you'll come every Friday and you'll meet with me and we're going to debrief. And for some reason... That changed my habits hmm. because I was being responsible to him. And so I would show up every week and all of a sudden I started getting all A's, right? So I guess I don't have really good answers other than the fact that it was support people and not actually my teachers or professors that made a difference for me until I started coming all the time. And then I got to know my faculty members who then served as resources, like I told you at the beginning. I have a faculty member who lives across the street who tells me to go to grad school. I have another one, uh, Carol Sklenica, who now lives out in California, who was, uh, I think she was an adjunct at, at Marquette, but she lived in the neighborhood, and I got to know her. She helped me with my dissertation, all that, like, a totally unpaid labor of love on her behalf of helping me out. But you don't get to know those faculty members until you're doing things right often. Mm. So it's really about taking advantage of the resources that are there. Once I started uh, meeting with people and then talked to the right people, Marquette had additional funding for me. But I'd never mm-hmm. asked, but I didn't know I could ask mm-hmm. because I got a offer. And you just, you know what I mean? You get yeah. an offer, you sign it. And then I was talking to somebody and they're like, oh, we have this additional fund for students who are at hardship. And it'd be like, I wish I would have known that, right? <laughs> right. Uh, but it took three years. So I, I guess the real answer is you don't know what you don't know. And that's the hard part about navigating this stuff. So when you, when you were in college, did you know what a registrar was? Did you know what a dean was? Yeah. I, I didn't know any of that yeah. stuff, right? So how do you know how to navigate things? Mm-hmm. I didn't. You just, I got a schedule. That was it. Right. Yeah. Huh. 
So I'm I'm not sure if that's a very no, helpful that's answer. very helpful. Yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like you know it's I, you're right. It it can be hard sometimes. You assume everyone at the university or whatever place you're in knows everything, right? And you think, oh, I can't ask that. That's so embarrassing. Yeah. I can't I can't reveal that. And then that becomes kind of the initial problem that then compounds, right? And I do find this with students, you know, and it's they they sometimes have very good reasons why they can't come to class or why they didn't do an assignment but they're embarrassed about it and they don't come talk to me. And then the more time that goes on, the harder it gets to do that. Yeah. And, but I think it, it's, that's, that's, you know, that's a hard thing to learn because you feel like you, you come in and everyone seems like they know what's going on and you feel like you have to as well. Okay, one last quick question. Okay, I'll, uh, gi- I'll give you a quick answer. Any opportunities you're very excited about as you uh, arrive here at Roosevelt University? So my, my pet project, is that I like to do a fundraiser every year by running an ultra marathon oh. to raise money. So I promise that I'm not shy about asking for money. So I, I told uh, Mike Cassidy, since I heard that he did a thing maybe once where he ran from Schaumburg over to here, I don't like street running, I prefer trail running, that maybe I'll convince him to run a 100 miler with me and then we'll raise money like a dollar per mile for each of us so everybody's got to give 200 or whatever they can. Um, but even if he doesn't come, I'll do it. And uh, so I'm hoping maybe we'll do something in August and I'll run that and then I'll ask you for money. How's that sound? Wow. I- your ultramarathons are typically 100 miles? Is that no, how far no, you no, run? No, 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 no. I've never run 100 miles How before. far do you run for an ultramarathon? Uh, uh, the longest I've done is a 64-mile race. Only so 64. I, didn't, I have to say... <laughs> did I say only? That, yeah, I don't, no, <laughs> I'm joking. No, no, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, uh, I'm convinced that whatever energy this job demands, you have the energy that it takes if you're cranking out 64 miles in one go. Well... We do stop at aid stations and rest. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyways, uh, that's that's my plan, and okay. I like being right here along the lake to get some runs in. So I'm excited about the idea when I have long days that I can just shoot out the door and go for a run and be right here. So that'd be awesome. Well, I have to say uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Fantastic meeting you. Uh, welcome to Roosevelt. We're we're very excited to have you as our new provost. Thank you. I'm glad to be a Laker. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>